The topic is Pesach, and I thought that uh, the time we have together, I would focus in on the primary ritual of Pesach, which is probably the primary ritual of the Jewish people, and that is the Seder. I think it's fair to say that the Seder is the most significant practice of the Jewish people. It's the practice that is mostly most observed by the Jewish people, actually, according to many studies which itself is interesting, it's a practice that we do inside our homes, not one done in the public spaces. What's interesting about the Seder, among many other things, is that the Seder is observed, of course, Jews all around the world for about hundreds and thousands of years in all different places. What is remarkable to me is that the fundamental Seder is essentially the same, or the classical Seder, is pretty much the same in every place. Jews in India, all kinds of places, Afghanistan, Europe, Sephardim, Ashkenazim. Basically, there's very little difference, incredibly small difference, between the classical Haggadot of the Sephardim, Ashkenazim, different communities, which is interesting, given the fact that it's performed inside the home and in all disparate places all around the world and throughout centuries. It is strange and quite interesting that fundamentally, Jews have kept pretty much the same classical Haggadot, which is not to say that there aren't many new Haggadot. It's uh, become all the rage in the last maybe 50 years to write your own Haggadah. But in terms of the classical Haggadah, it's pretty much the same. The, the events of the night are called the Seder. The term Seder, it's not clear when that term began. The Rambam says, talks about the events of the night as the Seder. And within the Haggadah itself, at the very end, of the Seder, the formal ending of the Seder, is a section that's called Nirza, and it begins with the words, Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehilchatov. The Sidur Pesach, the ordering of the Pesach, has been completed according to its, in the appropriate manner. So at the end of the Seder, we are looking back at everything we did that night, we're talking about Sidur Pesach, the, the arrangement. So the events of the night of Passover, the Seder, are actually arranged. Now the question is, what is the arrangement exactly? So, in the beginning preface to many of the Haggadot, you'll see that they list a whole set of things that we're going to do that night. When I was a kid, we had a little sing a little song to remember it. Kadesh Urchatz. Kadesh Urchatz, Karpas Yachatz, Magid Rachza, Mosibatza. So it's like a table of contents for the Seder. So how many, how many things are there in the table of contents? Anybody know? Counting them is cheating. Go ahead, Rick. Anybody know? You count them. Tell me. Okay, you counted them. How many? You say 15. Everybody agrees with 15? So it depends, actually, how you count them. I happen to agree with you it's 15, but in some of the Haggadot, it's 14. Whether it's 14 or 15, it's a trivial matter, but the, the difference is this. Whether you count motzi matzah as one or two. If motzi matzah is one, then we have 14. If motzi and matzah are two, then you count it as, as 15. What do you think? Should motzi matzah be counted as one or as two? Not an earth-shattering question, but nonetheless, yeah? What is the mitzvah of Motsi? You call it a mitzvah? I mean, the mitzvah is to make a bracha. Is that the mitzvah? Make a bracha when you eat? I mean, could be, but I don't think that's the mitzvah. There is a mitzvah of Motsi, which is not the bracha on the, on the, on the bread, on the, it's matzah, of course, but there is a different mitzvah that we call Motsi, perhaps, and that is that the Seder is, apart from the Seder, which is special for Pesach, the Seder is also a festival meal. On all, on all the festivals, we have a special mitzvah to eat a, a meal. With Shabbos, we have three meals. On the holidays, maybe two, maybe three. So that's why, for example, when we make a mozi on Shabbat, we have two breads. It's called Lechem Mishnah. So mozi presumably, is the mitzvah to eat the festive meal, which we have matzah, called motzi, so it's the lechem mishnah of the, spe- the meal was special. But on top of that, there's a separate mitzvah that on Pesach was supposed to eat matzah. 
So Motsi and Matzo. And the truth of the matter is that that question of Motsi, that on the festive meal of Pesach we have the festive meal. So we have Lechem Mishnah according to our practice is even on even on the holidays. Not just on Shabbat you have two chalas. But on the holidays you also have two. In fact, it'll be two, two matzot. This accounts, according to one, one, one opinion, for a custom that we have at the Seder. We have a Seder plate, we, we, and, we, and we also have, we put down the matzot. On, how, how many matzot do we have at the Seder? Three. We have three. So why do we have three? Why do we have three matzot? The Rabbah only had two, by the way. Rabbah had two. But the common practice is people have three matzot at the Seder. Why? Why three? There are different opinions as to why three. But the opinion found in Tosvot in Tractate Brachot is this. That the Gemara says that matzah, when you bake the matzah, you should break it. You eat, you eat broken because the Torah calls matzah lechem only, the bread of affliction. And the Gemara says a poor person doesn't always have, doesn't always have a, whole, a whole bread. Eat the broken bread, prusa. So Tosfot said, so on, so on Passover we're supposed to eat a broken, a broken matzah. But the problem is that for Lechem Mishnah, when you have a, the, the, the two breads you have for, on Shabbat, for example, have to be whole. Right? So therefore Tosfot said, that's how you get three. Two of them are whole breads for the mitzvah of Motzi, which is Lechem Mishnah. And one is the broken matzah. So the broken matzah can't count for Lechem Mishnah because it's broken. So therefore, that's how Tosvot does the compute. One plus two equals three. That's why you have, according to Tosvot, main, mainstream view, that's why we have three matzot on test. Anyway, so we have either 15 or 14 in the table of content. Now, you might think to yourself, it's not significant whether it's 15 or 14. That's probably correct. It's not that significant. But there is something to it, I think, as to whether it's 15 or 14. And I think if, if, it, if it's 15 it might be significant for the Seder. Because there's something else in the Seder that is 15. What is 15? Where else do we have 15? In where? The, 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 right, that's not in the Seder. Right, the day Pesach is Hagamatzot is the 15th of Nisan, that's right. But in the Seder itself, we say something. I would say that in America, if the, if, the part, if, the, if the piece of the Seder that is most known, even though it's essentially not really that important at the Seder in terms of the structure, it's relatively insignificant, but it's the most well-known thing at the Seder, of course, Dayenu. So Dayenu, and we have in your Haggadot, there's an introduction to, to Dayenu. Four, four words, Hebrew introduction to Dayenu. What is it? Who remembers? Kama malot kovot, five words. What does it mean, Kamamalo Tovot? See, Dayenu? Kamamalo, what does it mean, Kamamalo Tovot Lamakomo How many Malot? What does Malot mean? Good things. Malot, how many good things? You say about Yiddish. What do you think of so and so? Oh, she has many Milos, you say. Means she has many, many good things to say about her. But Malot in Hebrew means something else, which is what? Steps. Now, if you count how many steps there are in Dayeno, Iru X, then take a wild guess how many there are. There are 15. So, so, so Goldschmidt, who was Goldschmidt, Daniel Goldschmidt, a very important uh, academic, a choker, and uh, he pointed out something about Dayeno. And that is that there are 15 steps. And Goldschmidt thinks that there's a, there's a play on the word steps. Because we know that in the temple there were 15 steps. The Gemara says there were 15 steps in the temple, and on occasion, they, um, when they were walking up the steps, on each of the steps they would recite one of the, one of the psalms. Which, which, which psalms would they recite on the 15 steps? Shir HaMalot. How many Shirei HaMalot are there? Do you know? Guess, wild guess. There are 15. 15 Shirei Malot. You can look it up in your Tanakh, you'll see there are 15. On each of the 15 steps, they said one of the Shirei Malot. So Goldschmidt thinks Dayenu was an ancient poem, 
that was actually sung in the temple. Now, why does Goldschmidt think it was sung in, sung in, the, sung in the temple? Because if you look at, at Dayenu, there's something interesting about Dayenu. See, in the Haggadah, the Haggadah is focused in on one particular event. The Seder, as we, as we have it, is focused on one event, and that is leaving Egypt. It doesn't really discuss, typically, what happened after we left Egypt. So that in several of the sections that are recited from the Torah, it actually omits what happens afterwards. We'll get to that a little later. It omits it. So, but, but Dayenu is not so. In Dayenu, it's also leaving Egypt. It takes us through the desert. Ilu X, if God had only brought us into the... It ends with this. If God had only brought us into the land of Israel, Dayenu, that would have been enough. But not only did God bring us into the land of Israel, God built for us Beit HaBechira. That's the temple. God built for us the temple. That's how Dayenu ends. Dayenu ends it describes the journey from leaving Egypt to building the temple. So it actually goes way beyond just leaving Egypt. It ends up with the temple. So Goldschmidt hypothesizes that it was actually sung in the temple. Each of the Dayenus maybe was sung maybe at some point, who knows when, maybe Passover. It was sung in the temple itself. So the number 15 is significant, so perhaps the Kaddish Urchatz is also 15. And the point of it is not just the number 15. The point is that what is the Seder actually about? What is one of the core themes of, 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 of Pesach, of the Seder? In one word, themes gratitude. We are gathering together on the night of Passover, and we are proclaiming our gratitude for the fact that we are free. And we have the ability to make choices. That's the idea of freedom. And that idea of gratitude uh, is very central. So in, the, in this particular introduction, the author of this, there are actually many introductions like this, but this is the one that's most popular. It conveys, in effect, indirectly, the, the, the idea that all the events of the night are really related to, to one primary theme, the express, expression of our gratitude. In any event, this is the table of contents. This is the Seder that is printed in many of the Haggadot. In point of fact, leaving this 15-step business out, there is a primary ordering at the Seder. The Seder itself is ordered in a, in a different way. And the, the way the Seder is ordered is actually very significant. The Seder is ordered primarily through this, through the institution of what we call the Arba Kosot, the four cups of wine. Among the other mitzvot that, of the Seder, there's a mitzvah to drink four cups of wine. And the four cups of wine are functioning, it's interesting, they function at the, at the Seder as a kind of ordering principle. What, let's see, what are, when, when do we drink the four cups of wine? Let's see. So the first cup of wine is what? It's Kiddush, right? The first cup of wine is Kiddush. That's, 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 that's Kiddush is what? So Kiddush is a blessing. Baruch Atah, right? And, with, and it's, a, it's connected to actually two blessings. One is the blessing of Kiddush. Blessing means it starts with Baruch and ends with Baruch. Blessing is a formula. But together with the blessing of the day, there's another blessing that we say when we make Kiddush. Baruch Atah, right? We make a blessing on wine, because you can't drink anything without making a blessing. So the two blessings, there's the blessing of Kiddush, proclaims the day as a, as a holy day, describes the day, and then we say that in conjunction with the blessing on wine. That's how we start the Seder. What's the second cup? What's the second cup? Yeah? Where is the blessing found in the Haggadah? Okay, what, so tell me, what, what is the blessing? How does it end? Do you remember the blessing ends? Um, or do you have different how, how does the blessing end? Uh, it, it ends um, with again. Now, is a separate blessing. It's, you're right, it's said in conjunction with pre but what's the blessing that precedes it? Right before. Just before that. 
Just before, Baruch Yadafin is true. All, all of the four cups of wine are said together with Baruch Yadafin because you're going to drink it. So you have to make a blessing of the wine. Okay, we'll get to this in a second. But there's a blessing. Baruch Hashem starts what? Yeah? Gal Yisrael. Gal Yisrael is the ending of it. That's right. It starts with Hashem Gal Lanu. And it enters Baruch Hashem Gal Yisrael. And then we make a Baruch Yadafin. So what is that blessing on? Blessings are on something, you understand? You don't just make a blessing, but blessings about something. You basically said it. The blessing comes at the end of the section of the Haggadah that we call Magid, the telling of the story. So the blessing is the blessing we are saying at the conclusion of telling the story. It's the very end of the first before we eat. That's the second one. So you make a blessing, Hashem Galvanu, together with Bori Priyagrafit. And what's the third cup of wine? Is what? Bikat HaMazon. Yes, the third cup of wine is we say when we are saying the blessing Bikat HaMazon after we eat. Normally speaking, when we make a, say, Bikat HaMazon, we don't have to do it over a cup of wine. There is a custom often when there's a minion or something to do it over a cup of wine. But it's optional. But at the Seder, it's not optional. At the Seder, we are saying the Bikat HaMazon together with wine. And what's the fourth cup? After? It's correct. After a series of halals, at the end, we, we complete halal after we eat, and then we say together with another blessing called Nishmat Kochai, very beautiful actually. At the end of that, we make a blessing. It's the blessing on the, on the prayers of praise after the meal, called And that blessing is... is is followed by Bore Priyagafen. So let me just take two minutes or so to explain this. It's a technical point, but it's actually a very important point. There, in our religion, there are many mitzvot that we do. Many mitzvot. Most of the mitzvot that we do are not said in conjunction with a cup of wine. You take the lulav and the etrog on Sukkot, if you're waving it around different directions, you don't say after, after you make the blessing on the lulav, Bore Priyagafen. Some mitzvot that we do, we do say the Bari Priyagafen. The best example is Kiddush. Kiddush and Avdallah. Kiddush and Avdallah is a blessing you say on the onset of the holy day and the conclusion. It has nothing to do with wine. But the practice is to make the blessing of Kiddush and the blessing of Avdallah holding a cup of wine. To bracha awakos. For example, the, the wedding ceremony. The blessing is there's a blessing before marriage, Kedushin, Bichad Erosin, is also Bori Adolfin. So that, that mitzvah, the blessing of the wedding, is performed over a cup of wine. At the Seder, at the, the mitzvah that we are doing, someone asks you, what do you do with the Seder? It depends who you are. If you're a real litzvah, what you say is, well, we do four mitzvah. We make Kiddush, that's mitzvah number one. We tell the story. That's mitzvah number two. The saper b'siat mitzrayim. It's a mitzvah. We perform that mitzvah. The third is to eat a festive meal. You eat matzah. You have moro. You have charoset, uh, korech, etc. The meal itself, and that meal, the meal is com- concludes with the blessing of brikat hamazon, and that brikat hamazon is performed over a cup of wine. And the fourth mitzvah of the night is to say halal. And that mitzvah of Hawel is performed over a cup of wine. So the four cups of wine, from this perspective, are the ordering principle of the Seder. What are we doing that night? Well, it's simple. We're making Kiddush, and we're telling the story, and we're eating the meal, and we are, we are saying the prayers of, of praise. So that's, that's the ordering principle. The four cups of wine function as an ordering principle. The truth of the matter is, if we think about it, so we have four, we reduce the 15 to four, but in reality we, cr- we can reduce the, the four to two. Because they really do, we're really doing two things at the Seder. One is, and this is, the, this is the main point of the Seder, the one thing we're doing at the Seder is actually eating, eating, eating a meal. We, we eat things at the Seder. So two of those four cups have to do with the, with the meal. 
which two of the meal, obviously. Kiddush. Kiddush starts the meal. That's what Kiddush is. You go to a fancy affair or something like this, so you don't, usually if it's a fancy, you, you don't just start with the meal. You have drinks beforehand or whatever, smorgasbord. Or usually after the smorgasbord, you don't really need a meal, but that's beside the point. Anyway, but the, so Kiddush, basically, if, if you eat Friday night without Kiddush, you had a Friday night meal. If you want to turn Friday night into Shabbos, as they say, you make Kiddush. Because then the meal becomes a Shabbat meal. So Kiddush and the third cup, Bikata Mazol, that's the meal. Apart from what we eat at, at the Seder, we also say things at the Seder. And we say two different things. A, we tell a story. We are Mesaper, Bitziat Mitzrayim. And we're also saying prayers of praise. That's the second and the fourth cup. So at the Seder, we're doing two things. We are eating and we are reciting, or studying, I would say. Now, normally speaking, you would do it this way. We could probably take a vote. If we have to do two things, we have to study first or tell a story or say praises. And then we also want to eat. So which, what, which should we do first? Should we eat first or should we say the prayers first? So each one has a problem. Because if you eat first, after you eat and are very full with a delicious meal, you may say, we're pretty tired, you know, to start now with the praises or whatever. If you, on the other hand, if you start with the learning and the praises and all this, then after a few minutes someone's going to say, can we get this little cream on here with the ready? It's taking too long, dragging on, you know? So we, can, we, we could have a big dispute what's better, to eat first or to study and say prayers of praise. What's curious about the Seder, though, is we do neither of those two. Because we start with the meal, start with Kiddush, and then we don't eat. Even though we wash our hands. We make Kiddush, we wash our hands, and we don't eat. We could eat. We choose not to eat. We're not going to eat until first we've told the story. Okay, then we tell the story. And then we eat. And then we go back afterwards and complete telling the stories. To the degree that, it's curious about the Seder, there's another very strange practice we have at the Seder, which is this. The praises, the primary praise on the night of Passover that we say at the Seder is called Hallel. What is Hallel? It consists of six psalms. It's the recitation of six psalms. Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 118. How do we say Hallel at the Seder? What do we do? So we say two psalms before, before we eat. And we say the remaining four psalms after we eat. It's like you're saying Hallel, in the middle of Hallel, you, you eat. It's like really strange. So, clearly, the point is that the, what we say later is, in a sense, a continuation of what we said earlier. So, the, the, the ordering, there's a very special ordering over here. It's the integration of what we eat and what we say. And if you think about it more deeply, actually, if you, if you look, think about the Chumash. When the Chumash speaks about what are we doing uh, the night of Passover, when you look at the Torah, it's very clear that what the Torah speaks of, essentially, explicitly, the night of Passover is the night that you eat the sacrifice that you brought during the day. On the 14th, the day of the 14th, there's something called the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Sacrifice, and the Torah says, in fact, this is Shabbat's Torah reading, Parshat HaChodesh, that when you eat the Paschal Sacrifice, you should eat it at night, not in the day, you eat it at night, together with two things that accompany it, the matzah and the marah, matzot umorim yochu. And the Torah describes the way you eat it. So the meal, actually, Torah says the meal you were eating, what we call the Seder, is actually a sacrificial meal. The Torah says nothing directly about doing anything else. It's a kind of communal, a sacrificial meal, a zeva is a communal meal. The idea of the community coming together through the sacrifice is very central in the whole story of the Exodus. It's what Moshe was asking Paul the entire time. Let us go out into the desert and sacrifice to our, to our God. The rabbinic understanding, which is the Seder, is that in conjunction with the special meal, which is a sacrificial meal, there's another mitzvah that we are performing at, on the night of Passover. 
And that mitzvah, whatever the Torah source may be, and it's a question, what exactly is the Torah source? But the mitzvah is to study the events of the night. And the Torah has several possible sources for the mitzvah to study the Torah, or the, not the Torah, but the story that night. The, uh, one of them is the verse, the, the Higadatoba Vincha, from that the term Haggadah. So that, the, the rabbinic understanding is, there's a mitzvah to teach your child about what happened. And the further rabbinic understanding is that the mitzvah is that night, actually. The night of Passover itself is the mitzvah. There's a mitzvah to remember Passover every day. You say the Shema. The Shema says, third paragraph of the Shema, recited twice every day. I am the God who took you out of Egypt. So we're always remembering Egypt. But at the Seder, it's more than just remembering. The Seder is about conversation, about telling a story, about studying. It's by asking questions. The Seder is structured by questions and answers. So the rabbinic understanding is not just that there's a mitzvah on the night of Passover to study the story, but that that study of the story and the sacrificial meal are actually integrated. And that integration is what we call the Seder. I mean, it's, it's actually the quintessential Jewish ritual. It has both Talmud Torah in the form of questions and answers. It's kind of intergenerational study. It starts with questions that children might ask, different kinds of questions. And in conjunction with that is this meal, which is the sacrificial meal. Nowadays, we don't have a sacrifice. So the matzah functions instead of the sacrifice. We call that the, uh, the afikoma. But fundamentally, what, is, what we're talking about is a rabbinic understanding that there is such a mitzvah to teach your child. And that mitzvah is integrated with the commandment to, to, uh, to eat a meal. And in terms of integration of those two elements, it works in both directions. In other words, the point is that it's only if you first study the story that you will understand what you're actually eating. Of course, we, we can eat the meal without telling the story first. We choose not to do that in the Seder. We choose first to explain. Because only when you explain it, you understand why the matzah has significance, or the maror, or whatever, so we want, to, we want to understand what we're doing, so we study first. That's one, from one side. From the other side, there's, an, there's, there's, there's something else about, about study, which is that studying at the Seder should lead one towards doing. So that in, 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 in the other direction, that what we're learning should have some practical uh, implications, which at its core, I think, is one of the basic ideas of what we call halacha. Halakha means a set of practices. It's very nice to talk about compassion all the time. The question is, what are you doing about it? Anybody can talk. The question is, okay, I got it. So what are, what are we going to do about that? And live, living out our best, our best values, living out our moral side, which, I, which is what halakha I think is supposed to be about. So it's not just we talk about the matzah and talk about the moral, we then actually put it into practice. We then eat the matzah and eat the moral. So the integration is, is from, from the two, each side, I think, each side is, is feeding into the other. We, we understand what we're doing through the study, and we are making the, the learning significant by then doing. And this, this is called the same. So before I come to one other element of the Seder, I just wanted to make a different point about the Seder altogether, and the way it functions in, in the... The Seder, of course, the, the, the Passover ritual is a very highly regulated ritual. Fifteen steps. It's very precise. has a very particular order to it. But the events of the night of Passover, actually the idea of the Seder, goes well beyond the particular structure of, of, the, of the Haggadah. The idea of the Seder is something which is actually connected to the to the idea of Pes- Pesach, as, as the Haggadah describes it. See, see, let me explain it this way. If you remember in the Haggadah, 
there are four kinds of children who ask questions. Or the Haggadah speaks of four different children. The truth of the matter is, there are other parallel sources in our, in our, uh, in our library which have different, slightly different versions of who are these children. But what we have in, in the Haggadah, there are four children, and each one is asking a different kind of question. Or maybe it's not even a question. The so-called Chacham, the wise child, um, says, again, the wise child doesn't say anything. The Haggadah is making a Midrashic statement that a verse in the Torah we assign to a certain kind of child. So the verse in the Torah, which is one of the Ma'edot v'achukim v'hamishpatim, someone has an interest. What are these statutes and ordinances and laws? So the Haggadah ascribes that question to the so-called Chacham. What does the wise child say? Then, the Haggadah has another child, who we call the Rasha, the wicked child. That's the term in our Rasha. Insolent child, wicked child. What is so wicked about the child? This child, they ascribe the verse, What is this service for you? Now, then we have two other children. It's the simple child, what's going on, Mazot. And the fourth child doesn't even know how to ask. So we have to, we have to start the conversation. But let's talk about this so-called wicked child and the wise child. It's funny because those two are not really opposites. You can be not so wise and still not and be very saintly. And you, can, and you can be wicked and be very wise too, presumably. But in any event, that's what we have at the same. So the truth of the matter is that the, the child, the verse that God ascribes to the so-called wicked child, what does this matter for you? Now, God says, what you say is, respond in, in force to this child and say, listen, God did this for me. But if you had been there, you would not have been saved. Okay, so when it, we, don't like the, we don't like the tone of the question. Someone's chump. Well, what are you wasting your time for? That's the question. Well, what is this for you? It's such a tedious holiday. What are you wasting your time for? So we, at, when, when the question is raised in that particular brighter, we are dismissing it. Listen, don't estimate you. You wouldn't have been saved. But when someone asks an insolent question, or an insolent person asks a question, it doesn't mean that it's not a good question, actually. So the truth of the matter is the Haggadah actually responds to this child. Because the truth of the matter is that the so-called wise child and the so-called wicked child essentially are asking the same question, which is a very good question. The question is very simple. Okay, 3,000 years ago we were delivered out of Egypt. Okay, very nice. For this I should turn my life upside down? What's, what's the point? It's, it, they frame it differently. One says, what, what are you wasting your time for? And the other one says, I know there must be some deep meaning to all this, but for the life of me, I can't understand what it is. Please, please enlighten me. But fundamentally, the question is a very important one, which is the relevance. What is the relevance of this ritual to the way I live? That, that is the core question of the Seder. <laughs> and the Seder attempts to answer that question. It attempts to answer that question, I believe, in, in two different ways. Two ways that it answers the question. First, I'll mention the simple way that it answers the question. And then I'll get to what is the core answer at the Seder, which is the core idea of the Seder. And why it's the Seder, actually. The simple answer this, that the Haggadah provides us with is the following. You think that what happened 3,000 years ago is not irrelevant. But I say to you, says this anonymous author of the Haggadah, that the events that happened 3,000 years ago could happen in every single generation. We sing that this evening. This, this, this promise has stood in all generations. In every generation, someone tries to destroy us, and God saves us from them. That's what the Haggadah says. So the point is that, that that's an answer. The answer is you think it's not relevant, but we, what we are describing here is not so much a historical event. We are describing over here 
a certain perception of what happened, a perception of, of people that are sent into bondage, that are oppressed, and somehow, over time, are, are, are yet redeemed. And that cycle, though that's, that series of events, repeats throughout history. History, history repeats. So don't think it happened 3,000 years ago. It could happen many, many times, even in our own generation, the Chodar Vodar. That's one approach that the Haggadah takes. That would answer the question of relevance. But actually, that's not the real answer. That's the answer. But one, one could disagree with what the Haggadah says, obviously. But the Haggadah actually is about something else. So in the few minutes that we have, I wanted to to mention what I believe is at the core of the Seder. See, what happens, the Haggadah is essentially an interpretation of, of, uh, of history. It's not specifically about what happened in Egypt, but rather it's, it's putting Egypt in a certain framework. And the framework in which the Haggadah places the experience of the Exodus is the framework of a prior promise. The promise that was made, says the Haggadah, to, uh, to Abraham, to Abraham, in the, in the covenant, in the brief in Abitarim, in Abitanach, that's chapter 15. In chapter 15 of Breshit, Abraham is told to step outside. Abraham is concerned. He has no heir, and he's an old man, and he's wondering what's to be with his life, with his work, what's going to happen. And God makes a promise to Avram. God says promises that Avram will have descendants. And that his descendants, or some of them anyway, will enter into a covenantal relationship with God. And will be. And God promises Abraham's descendants this, 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 this land. The land of Canaan is the promised land and promised to Avram's descendants, or some of them. And Avram says at that point in the Chumash, if you remember, which could be translated as, how do I know that, that, that in fact I will possess it? Well, could mean through what? You promised my descendants the land. What is the cost? What is the price? It's, it's called a covenant, a breach. A covenant, by definition, is always two-sided. There are some people who believe that there's such a thing as a unilateral covenant. That's a... How should I say it in a nice way? I'll say it in not a nice way. It's utter nonsense. It's a contradiction in terms. There is no unilateral covenant. It's not in terms of covenant, and not in terms of life. Anything worth anything in life comes at a price. If it's free, it's not worth anything. So there's always a price to be paid. In the case of Abraham's promise, there's a very big price to be paid that most people don't want to pay. Abraham said, How do I know? Well, through what will, I, will, I, will my descendants gain possession of this land? And God sets out the terms. Know very well. This verse is found in the Haggadah. Your descendants will be strangers. Vavodum, they will be enslaved, be Nuotam, and they will be oppressed for four hundred years. And then the fourth generation shall return to the land. That's the price. Should you be willing to pay that price? The price being a stranger, a slave, and an oppressed being. And those that endure that will be covenantal, have the opportunity to return to the land. And by the way, I would add in addition to oppression and stranger and enslavement if you study the covenant and you all should study it very carefully chapter 15 you notice something interesting about this covenant which is that Abraham was also told in that covenant to take various sets of animals actually three sets of animals and to cut them in pieces and then to take a fourth set of, of birds and the birds chapter 15 well, you don't, don't have to trust me you see it for yourself he doesn't cut in pieces. So what is the idea of taking three sets of animals and cutting them in pieces? And then the birds, he doesn't, he doesn't touch the birds. The birds are not cut. So presumably, the animals that he takes 
represent the, the, the covenant itself. Because in the covenant, God says to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers and enslaved and oppressed, but the fourth generation shall return to the land. So the fourth generation, presumably, is related to the fourth set. The fourth set was never cut. The first three sets of animals are cut in half. And those three sets represent the three generations of suffering. The fourth generation returns to the land is represented by the birds. So what is the significance? So it means those that suffer do not possess. And those that possess never, never suffer. In the Chumash that's certainly the case, right? Because let's say in the fulfillment which takes place beginning with the book of Exodus. Right? How does the book of Exodus begin? It says a Joseph begins with the names of Jacob's children. Says Jacob and right Joseph and his, and his brothers and the generation died. Torah says the generation died and a new Pharaoh emerged. He starts to persecute the Jews. It happens after the generation of Joseph dies. So let's count out the generations. It's kind of from Levi because the Torah gives the Levi died. Levi is Joseph's brother. His son, Kahat, generation number one. His son, Amram, generation number two. His son, Moshe, gener- so Moses is a third generation Jew. The people Moses takes out of Egypt are third generation. They don't possess the land. They go to the desert, they die. Their children, who were never in Egypt, they, they begin to possess the land in the Chumash. In fact, how does the story, what's the first how does the concept of, of Canaan begin in the Torah? Who were the first people that... In the Torah, Israel never crosses the Jordan. But they begin to conquer the land in the Torah. What story is that? Story? Sichon. Story of Sichon. Sichon, the king of... And Mori, the Amorites. The defeat of Sichon is the beginning of the conquest of the land. God said to Abraham... The fourth generation shall return to the land. And then God adds, For the sin of the Amori is not yet complete. So the Torah used the generic term Amori for the peoples of Canaan. And in the Chumash, in fact, the fourth generation begins conquering the lands by defeating Sichon, Melech, Amori. But the point I want to make is this, that if you enter into the covenant and you're willing to endure the suffering, you have to understand something. You will, never, you will never possess the land. Those that suffer don't possess the land. So to enter into the covenant means to be willing to endure the suffering throughout your life with the knowledge that maybe your great-grandchildren, someone else will possess the land, and you probably never even see it. How many people are willing to, to take that upon themselves? Answer, very few. Wendy, you're willing to take it by yourself. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think that suffering would be incompatible with possessing the land? Just as a theory. What about I'm, not sure it's in, I'm not sure it's incompatible to possess the land. I think that I think the Torah is setting a very high bar for anybody who's willing to enter into the covenant. I mean, the person who actually represents the covenant in Breshit is, of course, Yaakov who has just about the most miserable life anyone could ever possibly imagine. Uh, So I'm not sure that, you know, it's a good question. I'm not sure that it's incompatible with with possession. I saw it more as a kind of prerequisite. And that the point is that this is not a covenant. It talk about not being unilateral. The terms that it sets are are so austere and so difficult and it's hard to imagine anybody but someone with enormous faith would be willing to enter into the covenant to begin with. But the point of the, of the Haggadah, you see, the Haggadah, which, which at its core is a study. Because the Haggadah consists, in fact, if you think about the Haggadah, it's so strange, we take these things for granted. The Seder, the core text of the Seder as we have it, is not a text from the book of Exodus. The core text of the Seder are four verses from the book of Devarim. Arami, Arami, Go and study what the, uh, what the Aramean did to our father Jacob. That's, 
the, the, the verses, the core text of the Seder, are four verses from the book of Deuteronomy. We would never have done such a thing. We would have said, let's choose excerpts from the book of Exodus, and let's read a few chapters from the book of Exodus. But instead of reading a few chapters from the book of Exodus, we read four verses from the book of Deuteronomy. And on each of these four verses, we break it up into pieces, and we say something about it. So the idea is not to read. The, the mitzvah of the Haggadah is not to read the Haggadah. It's study. Medrash. It's the only time during the year we have a mitzvah to do medrash. Is it the Seder? The Dorish Kolapar Shakula. So, so, so we read very little. And the point is to ask questions, to get different opinions, to try to figure it out, to see difficulties in the verse. So this, these four verses talk about the first two, going down into Egypt. My, our father was a wandering Aramean. By Yagar, he was a stranger. The Egyptians harmed us, right? By Yanunu, when they oppressed us, Inui, and they placed upon us great, great, great labors. So the, we are at the Seder, actually. The core text of the Seder, then, recalls the idea that the events of Egypt are a covenantal fulfillment of the promise or the agreement that God made with Abraham. In other words, the point is, the answer to the question, why do we care so much about what happened 3,000 years ago? The answer is, it's not the historical event of 3,000 years ago that actually interests us, it may interest some of us, but it's something else. Because the, the significance of Exodus is that it clinches the covenant between Abraham and God, between Israel and God, and that covenantal relationship is one in which we function. Our relationship with God is covenantal. That is to say, covenantal means that you expect something from the other party. That's covenantal. Or, you, or you, even you can demand something from the other party. Any good relationship, deep relationship, there are all kinds of demands on all sides. When someone says, do whatever you want, you know, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, that's not much of a relationship. But the relationship is, there are all kinds of demands, and all kinds of requests, demands, expectations. And the other part of a covenantal relationship is, it is presumably long-term. Israel and God have a long-term relationship, and when it's long-term, everybody understands their ups, the downs, there's the problems, you work through them together. So the answer to the question, why should we care about this particular event, is very simple. It is the context in which we function. That's the answer. It's not about what happened now. And in fact, the historical event of Passover doesn't even interest us. Personally, it doesn't matter to me if it never happened even. But the description of this covenant and what it entails, and the high bars that are set, and the expectations, and when there are high expectations and they're not met, sometimes we get very angry and upset that we expect something and it's not forthcoming. So the, the story of the Exodus is a fulfillment of a prior promise. And in that sense, I think, we can speak of a Seder. Let me just explain what the significance of Seder is. I'll, I'll explain it by contrasting it with, with, with a different day, and I'll conclude with this. We just had a little holiday on our calendar. It's a little holiday from one perspective. It's not a major holiday. It's not in the Torah. It's not a day that you can't work on. So it's not, it doesn't have that, that heaviness of the holidays. It's a little holiday we call Purim. And the holiday of Purim, near and dear to my heart, is, is observed in different ways. There's the different observances of Purim. Is the, the observance by the book of Purim, the rabbinic Purim. You read the Megillah, you have a festive meal, you send gifts to your friends, you send gifts to the poor. That's the holiday of, that's the rabbinic Purim. That's the Ramam's Purim. That's the Shulchan Purim. There's another Purim. There's the Purim of the people. That's a different Purim. That's the Purim of masks. That's the Purim of cross-dressing. That's the Purim of mocking the Torah. That's the Purim of uh, getting drunk. That's the Purim of not knowing the difference between good and evil, and on and on. That's a different Purim. And that Purim 
carnival side of Purim is saying something about the world. When you look at all these various customs of Purim, maybe 15 of them, and you put them together, I'm not suggesting those who engage in this understand what, what they're doing, but if you put them all together, appointing somebody to be the rabbi of the community who knows nothing in the regular... The point is that what that Purim is about in some deep, you know, in the, the collective unconscious of Israel, is that we are questioning the way the world works. We like to believe that the world has uh, works in a kind of ordered way. That there is, that we, that we make distinctions, and that those distinctions are real. We distinguish in terms of, you have the good guys and the bad guys. We have rules and regulations which set lines and limits. We make gender distinctions. Unfortunately, we question these distinctions. Men and women, like we can't tell which is which. Haman and Mordechai, we're not sure. Blessed is Mordechai, blessed is Haman. The Torah, Purim Torah. You can take the very Torah itself and the method of study and arrive at absurd conclusions. The holiday of Purim is a holiday in which we question I would say the Seder. And that's actually very important, I think, every so often that we give ourselves the opportunity to question. Very important to question basic things, to be given the freedom to question. On Purim, under the guise of being a little drunk, you know, it's like jokes, I didn't really mean it. But the jokes are always true. I mean, I didn't mean it means it's true, but I'm saying it in such a way that I hope you're not offended. That's the holiday of Purim. That's the holiday of, of inversion. That's the holiday of lack of Seder. At the end of the day, though, Purim, as much as I love Purim, I think it's a very important day and a real day for us, is not mainstream Judaism. Mainstream Judaism is actually Pesach. Mainstream Judaism is the Seder. What we are affirming at the Seder, and emblematic of that is the very Seder itself, is highly, highly ordered events. The claim that lies at the heart of the Seder is that there is a Seder. That is to say, even though we don't always see it, the belief that history has a purpose and a meaning. And at the center of this is a covenantal promise. We are interpreting, as it were, it's an act of interpretation. We are interpreting the events of Egypt as a fulfillment of a, of a prior promise. So it's a Seder. There's a significance to the suffering. There's a significance to the being a stranger and Inui and Avdut. All of this we are claiming at the Seder is part of a prior promise and a prior commitment. And the mutual commitments become reified through that suffering and through that strangeness and through that, and through that enslavement. So at its core, really, the Seder is about the way one sees the world. We have four cups of wine. We put on the table a fifth cup of wine that we don't drink. We call it the cup of Elijah, kosher Eliyahu, which is a way of saying that we believe that there is a purpose and a meaning and there will be a, a resolution. We don't understand it. We believe it's leading towards some kind of resolution. We believe the world can get better. That's what the Seder is all about. And that is, I think, that is, that, that is our core ritual. So as much as on the holiday of Purim, we give ourselves the opportunity, a significant one, to question all the givens. It's always important to question the givens, but the ritual of Passover is, in effect, uh, reminding us what lies at the center. What lies at the center is actually redemption. And the book of Exodus is the book of redemption. The Jewish religion, as in, even though we have suffered plenty, and we recall the suffering, but it's not actually about the suffering. I mean, I grew up with survivors of the Holocaust. Grew up with them. And it's the most significant event probably in my life, together with the founding of the State of Israel. But I, I remind myself all the time that that's not at the center of Judaism. The center of Judaism is the redemption. The book of Exodus is about redemption, and so is Passover about redemption. A redemption that sometimes we see a little of in our own experience, 
but we claim, at least through the Seder, that there is a Seder. And we have on the table to remind us the cup of redemption. Okay, I'll stop you. Anybody have any comments or questions? We have a few minutes, and I'll be happy to try to respond. Pesach is a time of questions, you know. Like it means. <laughs> I don't say what. Anybody? Yes. Somebody wants to say something? I have a question. Go ahead. Yes. So, you talked about it being kind of like a very hard bargain to accept all the suffering in order to get to like the eventual redemption. But it seems like the person who accepts the suffering is not actually the person who does the suffering. And then I wonder how hard it really is. Like, now, the person who accepts the suffering, I think, covenantal suffering is actually Yaakov. Abraham, in other words, Abraham is not the suffering Jew of the, of, 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 maybe his wife suffered. That's another story. But the person who represents the suffering, the person who goes down to Egypt knowing what it is, that's the very important point. And in the 46th chapter of Reshit, Yaakov is headed down to Egypt when he, he brings sacrifices and God says, do not be afraid, which means he's afraid. I will be with you when you go down. I will bring you back up. Going down to Egypt, because Yaakov already suffered this way in the house of Laban, which is the parallel to the Exodus. That's another piece of the Haggadah. See what Laban the Aramean did. Jacob in the house of Laban undergoes Gehud's Abdutaninu. It's exactly the term that the Torah uses, in fact he himself uses, to describe his own experience. So the point is Yaakov going down to Egypt is going to, into a situation that he knows what it is. He knows because he already experienced it once. And yet he's willing to, to go. He says, Hineni. Yaakov, Yaakov. He says, Hineni. Don't be afraid. You're part of my plan. And Jacob accepts it. So, Jacob, who is Israel, that's the moment, the great moment in Rashid, when Yaakov willingly and knowingly accepts the suffering. So, it's Jacob, actually, who is the one. Jacob is Israel. Jacob is the main character of Rashid. Obviously, he's Israel. So, therefore... That's the story in which Yaakov is is accepting the suffering. So why do you think we've been at the Terry Cup with Abraham then and not Yaakov? He's going to be the actual person who accepts it. No, I think the I think Yaakov Yaakov is the third generation. Three generations of suffering. Right. Fourth generation shall return to the land. But I think the way it plays out, in other words, okay, let me just say the following. The Haggadah makes the claim, I'll just stop in two minutes. The Haggadah makes the claim that this could happen in every generation. The claim. Right? Don't think it just happened one time. It could happen in every generation. Tagada also makes the claim that the experience of Jacob in the house of Laban was a covenantal experience. In other words, Tagada is saying something very important. It's saying, listen, don't think that the historical event of the Exodus is what this is about. Let me tell you something. It was an Exodus from Egypt even before we went to Egypt in the first place. Because Jacob's own experience is that of going into Mitzrayim. I mean, conceptually, it's the same experience. So, Jacob is, of course, the third generation. In other words, what, what the Haggadah is realizing is that the covenantal fulfillment of this promise takes place in the Torah in two different places. It takes place in the book of Genesis on the level of family, as instantiated by Jacob. And it takes place in the Chumash, on the level of the nation, as instantiated by, by, by Israel. Israel and Jacob being, of course, synonyms. In other words, it happens twice in the Torah. So that God simply says, if it happens twice, it can also happen ten times. That's the claim that God is making. But what God wants to get away from is, did it really happen? My answer is, I, I don't care if it happened or not, personally. It so, well, wouldn't shake my faith one whit if it never happened. It's not about history, it's about a concept. And the concept's a very important one. What does it mean to live the covenantal life? The claim is, it means, means entering into a relationship which is fraught with all kinds of dangers. And understanding that somehow, some way, it's all, it's all for the best. It's all part of this, this divine plan, which ends up in a very good place. It ends up in redemption. It's that promise. It's the promise which has kept us going. It's the hope and, and the, the faith, actually, that we can live a, 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 a redeemed life and we can be part of a process of redemption. So yes, it's actually 
taking place on two different levels. Yes? So I'm sorry, I'm going to be concrete. So if you make Yaakov the third generation, then how would you explain how let's say Yosef and his brothers were the deemed ones? Right. So if you're asking if Jacob is the third generation, who was the fourth generation? So I have an answer to that would take me about an hour to explain it. The simple the simple answer is I mean, I think there's a, even a better answer. The simple answer is that in the Torah, in Genesis, the fourth generation that possesses the land of Jacob's sons, the story is Shechem. The conquest of Shechem becomes one way to see the conquest of Shechem symbolically as a kind of conquest of the land. That's, I think, the simple answer. There's a more complex answer, which I like better, and that Jacob himself is two generations. But I, that would, you know... Sounds crazy, but when you hear it, I think it's actually simple and, and very convincing. But we'll have to leave that for maybe for next Pesach or something. I don't know. Isn't in the land how long before he comes back and goes down to Egypt? How long was Yaakov in the land? The Torah doesn't give us the years. The Torah only tells us he was 130 years old when he went down to Egypt. He lived in Egypt for 17 years. The Torah doesn't actually give us the years. There's some computations people try to make. It's not. It's clear. It's clear. He's there for a while. That's for sure. He goes back, and the whole story with Joseph. And Joseph is in Egypt himself for 13 years. So I don't know. We can do the computations, but narratively, he's there for quite a while. He returns in chapter 30, 30, 32, 33, and he goes down to Egypt in chapter 46. Okay, I'll stop here then. Have a. Glad we could all participate.